I want to be respectful of your time, Diego. We're at the agreed time limit. Do you want to end here and wrap up? Or do you want to yeah, take- Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, it's a lot okay. of fun. We've covered all of the papers. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. I know. I feel like <laughs> we just scratched the surface, you know, but time is finite. <laughs> This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hi, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today, we're going to review the year 2021 in urban economics. Our guest today is Diego Huga. Diego is one of the most preeminent economists working in the field of urban economics today. He's professor of economics at SEMFI and the author of many, many classic papers. Welcome, Diego. Hi, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Regular list to the podcast. So it's really a lot of fun to be here with you today. Glad to have you. So among your many professional accomplishments, you also maintain an active Twitter presence, which is what brings us together today. Since 2018, you've highlighted annually 10 of your favorite urban economics articles published in the previous year. Let me just start with a simple question. Why did you start doing this exercise, selecting your favorite papers of the year? Well, it was actually one of the first things I did on Twitter, right? So I haven't been a Twitter user for that long. I actually started in 2018, right? I have been reluctant to get into social media for quite a while. And then a few of my colleagues at Penfi, who are more regular Twitter users, encouraged me to, to look into it. And well, it's really fun and you actually get lots of nice stuff and so on. And then another urban economist, Elizabeth Piladicans, sort of gave me the final push to sort of <laughs> really, there's lots of urban stuff going on and there's all of this fun things and it's really a, a nice environment and you know you can actually get a nice Twitter feed if you select people you follow carefully and so on. So I did that. And then you know I sent a few tweets and so on. And then shortly after that, there was a Twitter thread with a list of papers, not in urban economics in particular, but in economics more generally by Matt Natowitigo. So he was doing a list of all papers generally in economics. And I thought, well, you know, this is not something I feel I could do, like papers overall in economics, but maybe if it was just urban. I could do something like that, right? So I thought, well, what would be 10 of my favorite papers last year? And then I came up with a list. The other thing I thought would be fun would be to put on myself an additional constraint relative to Matt's list, which was to have just one tweet per paper and try to, in a single tweet, summarize the paper. And that sort of was a, a fun part of the exercise, right? Trying to condense everything into just a few words and seeing what I could get away with it. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a big challenge, considering that these days it's common for authors to have 20 tweet threads describing their 100-page papers. What's your approach to condensing a paper's contribution in a tweet? Like, there's an art to it. I'm interested to learn what is your process is just getting it down to what's essential. I mean, these days we're all immersed in the job market, right? And you especially see it with job market papers, right? They're becoming longer and longer. And then the abstracts are sort of taking a full page, right? <laughs> you often think, I would like to get this as a short, right? It's almost like an introduction already, right? So right. it's not always easy, right? Because some of these papers are actually quite rich and there's a lot of stuff going on. But in itself, it forces you to think about what's really the essence of the paper, what it's really the main contribution. So papers are getting longer, but also the volume of papers is increasing. So how do you digest the huge volume of papers published every year? How do you construct your consideration set? Well, the first year, I just was on the spot, right? So I really just thought about it at that point. These days, because I know it's coming sometime in December, then it's in the back of my mind. I say, with papers during this year, I said, oh, this is a nice one and so on, right? But I really don't 
put the list together until the very end. And of course, there's lots of papers and there's many more than 10 interesting papers every year, right? So it's not easy to narrow it down to 10, but I think it's a good discipline also to, to try to do so, right? And, and the idea is not necessarily to pick the the 10 best papers, right? And this is why I talk about 10 of my favorite papers, right? Because there are lots of good papers and there may be other papers that are just as good or even better than, than this ones, right? It's it's a mix of things. It's papers that I think all of them are very good, but it's also trying to get a thing that caught my attention or things that were newer or a new perspective on something or things that were just fun or things that also may have not got us noticed because maybe they weren't published in, in such a major outlet or also getting a variety of things, right? I mean, often you will have several papers that are closer to each other. And then although they may all be very good, then you sort of pick one that represents that family of papers and try to go for more variety, right? But certainly, yeah, the number of papers is increasing and in economics generally and in other fields, I guess, but also in urban. And this is partly the result of the field expanding. And also many people who maybe are not usually urban economists or haven't traditionally seen themselves that way getting more interested in, in spatial issues, right? And that's nice because it's also bringing new perspectives to the field. It's bringing new tools, new sources of data, new ways of thinking of things, even new topics that we haven't covered traditionally, right? So I think this kind of expansion has been very positive for the field. I like this distinction between the quote-unquote best papers and your favorite papers. I think it's nice to allow for some of these idiosyncratic things that just kind of appeal to you. And it also kind of spreads attention to papers that maybe didn't get into the most exclusive journal. So I like that feature a lot. Yeah, also because, I mean, always in this list, there are papers published into obvious general interest journals, like, you know, the American Academy Review, Econometrica, JP, whatever, right? But there's a lot of noise in the publication process, right? And there's lots of things that are done to quality, but also just lack or the draw of the, that you get of referees or just chances or People, especially young people, often just sort of being maybe more reluctant to take risks, or maybe they, they're worried about tenure and they need to get some paper out quickly or whatever, right? So you get papers published in outside of the main general interest journals or in more field journals or journals that are general interest but not as highly regarded in general, that are often just as good as the other papers. And often these papers in the long term, they get the attention they deserve. But not always, right? So you know, just getting attention to them, all of us, actually, you know, when you see papers that you like, just citing them and mentioning to people is also a way for them to get to the place that they deserve in terms of attention quicker, right? So I've got a meta question before we dive in. I'm really excited to get to these papers. You know, one thing I noticed about them and that I've seen in your threads in the past and in the urban econ literature more generally, they're very international which I think might not be obvious to somebody from outside the field, that focus on cities could be so globalized, both in terms of the research focus and the identity of the researchers. Do you notice trends where people have a sort of continental orientation to their methods, perhaps, and other people have a more American orientation? Or is it pretty globalized at this point where People are borrowing methods and ideas from one another freely. So in terms of the you know, national origin, the application of the office, this has been quite global, I think, for some time, right? So there's actually a long tradition of working on, on urban economics and economic geography outside of the US, uh, in Europe in particular, but also in places like, like Japan, there's a very strong tradition of urban economics research. 
In terms of data, however, I think this is newer, right? So there was a more traditional focus on the U.S., partly for data issues, partly just because economics in general tends to be a bit more U.S.-focused in terms of data and topics. Something that is helping here, I think, is the fact that there are very nice new sources of data that are becoming available. And those are sometimes becoming available globally, sometimes actually are becoming available quicker in other places rather than in the U.S., right? So although it has been rare until now, for the first time we're seeing instances where you can actually get better spatial data outside of the U.S., right? So, so for instance, if you try to track urban development in the U.S. in detail, this is something that I tried to do a long time ago, right? So this paper on, on sprawl that we had in the QJE back in you know 2006 with Marcy Birchfield and Henry Overman and, and Matt Turner, here we're using satellite data. Right, where you with remote sensing, you can try to get a, a sense of what's built up and what's not in the US in this sort of grid of 30 by 30 meters, right? And it was sort of the state of the art of what you could do at that point. Nowadays, in many countries, or at least in some countries, you can have data on specific buildings, right? So for instance, France and Spain both have a cadastre where you can actually have a you have an official 3D map of every building. So you have the exact shape of the building with metric precision. And not only the building, but like the actual dwellings, right? So it's like a giant 3D jigsaw puzzle where you put the different dwellings together and they together make up a building. And you can do that for the entire country, right? So the fact that these newer, rich data sources are coming available also outside of the US, I think is also encouraging even US researchers to work with non-US data. Great. So I should note that we're going to go through this list in alphabetical order by the author's last name. Is there anything else you want to mention about the list before we dive in? No, I guess that's what's stressing, right? Because just for the sake of following the Twitter thread, I tend to number the tweets and just one, two, three, four. But this is like you would number any Twitter thread so that people know how many messages are coming afterwards, right? But it's not really like a ranking of the papers. It's purely alphabetical. It's already hard enough to come up with 10 papers. Uh, <laughs> ranking them is not something I want to get into. <laughs> Fair enough. So the first on your list is an article called The Internal Spatial Organization of Firms, Evidence from Denmark by Camila Ocosta and Dite Lingamark that appeared in the Journal of Urban Economics. So this is a paper on how firms are organized and how that's changed over time using Danish data, data from Denmark. Uh, what are we learning from this paper, Diego? Well, we are learning uh, four things. And they all have to do with the same sort of general topic, which is to try to link the growing functional specialization of, of cities with increasing functional fragmentation of firms, right? So by functional specialization of cities, what we mean is that they're much less organized by, say, sector of activity, like Detroit being a car city or New York being a finance service city, that sort of thing, to one where cities are more organized by function, like management versus production, those sort of things, right? And how that's linked with firms having their activities increasingly fragmented across space, right? So this paper has very nice data for Denmark over a long period. It goes from 1981 to 2016. It's matched firm worker data, and they use it to tell us four things, right? The first thing is that firms have become more multi-establishment over this period, right? So at a very basic level... If you just look at you know, the average number of production establishments per firm, that's increased a lot, something like you know 20-something percent, 21%, if I recall correctly. And this is something that we've seen before, right? The worry that's there is that maybe this is reflecting some 
overall change in the economy or maybe some change in the sectoral composition of employment, something like that. So the nice thing about what Camilo and Dieter do is they actually show that this change is mostly a with firm change, right? So this is coming from the fact that its individual firm is getting more and more establishments. And the way they show this is by regressing each firm's number of establishments, firm fixed effects, and then time effects, right? So the firm fixed effects make sure that you're looking at within firm changes. And then if you look at the time fixed effects, how they change over time, you see this trend of a growing number of establishments. The second fact is about where these new establishments are being located. And they show that they tend to be further and further away from the firm's headquarters. The third one is about where the workers are located. And they show that, you know, since you have more establishments that are further away from the headquarters, of course, the workers are also further away. But that's different for different kinds of workers. And in particular, it seems that firms are currently locating closer to the headquarters more managers and clerical workers and putting further away workers in other occupations, like workers engaged in, in production. And the fourth fact is that the number of managers per worker within its firm has increased a lot. And most of this is because you're getting more and more managers in the headquarter location and also in bigger cities, right? So those are the four facts. And it's really like a stylized fact paper, but it's neat because it's things that we sort of guessed that were happening, but we haven't seen really shown before, or at least not with this kind of careful level of detail. It's very thoughtfully done, but also has great data covering these 35 years. I think that is kind of remarkable about this paper, especially in this era where I see a lot of emphasis on causal identification or a lot of emphasis on quantifying sophisticated general equilibrium models. This is a paper that actually gets a lot through measurement, right? And through really identifying a great data source and some missing pieces in our knowledge. This is also kind of related to Greg's earlier point, which is that traditionally, population data has been more accessible than business data. And that's especially true in the US, where there really is no sort of micro data on businesses that's public use. That's maybe one reason that researchers are going to Scandinavia or other countries where some of this data is more readily accessible. Yes, and these facts papers, I think, are very important, right? And we need more of them. And they're important partly as a basis to think about new frameworks and new models, and partly to check on the conclusions that we get from existing models, right? And, you know, from my own personal perspective, I also see this paper as a bit of the latter, right? This is a bit of a more personal view on this paper, but of course, I see it as related to some work that, and the paper says that itself, right? It's in a way related to an old research agenda of mine and a paper that I had with Gilles Anton over 15 years ago, this paper on from sexual to functional specialization, right? So that paper was mostly a theory paper. It started with a table in the introduction showing some stylized facts. It was looking at the US and showing that if you look at the ratio of managers to production workers in big versus small cities, this wasn't very different across cities in the 1950s, but over time, there was a clear pattern emerging where the bigger cities in the US specialized more and more in, in management, and these smaller cities specialized more and more in production, right? So then we had a model linking that to changes in firms' organizational structure. So in the model, firms had headquarters and production plants. They wanted to have the headquarters close to other headquarters because they could share business suppliers. They wanted to have the plants close to other plants because of agglomeration economies. But then splitting headquarters from plants and space was costly, 
So we did sort of a, a comparative status exercise where we captured the change in communication technologies, internet, easy transportation, and so on in firms. As a result of that, firms started fragmenting their activities, locating their headquarters in big cities, production plants in smaller cities. And because many firms did at the same time, that changed the patterns of employment and specialization in cities, and that itself made firms' decisions worthwhile, right? So if you think about the way we normally write apply three papers, a typical structure is something where you would start with some stylized facts, then have a model that has some new facts, and then go and check those facts against the data. Right. So this paper of mine with Jill had that final piece missing, right? Yeah. We had some motivating evidence, a model, but we never really went back to check mm-hmm. that the findings we're getting in terms of linking this changes at the city level, which is at the firm level, whether that held in the data, right? And this was partly because at that point, we didn't have this kind of data, right? So for me, you know, personally, it's also very satisfying to see that this paper actually finds these four facts that match very nicely with what the model was predicting, right? So in a way, it's, it's closing this loose end that that previous research. But, you know, more generally, I think it's also goes much beyond that, right? Because I think this is an area where we need more research. We should be learning more about how the patterns of firm organization very across cities. And here we have nice models outside of urban. So we have a lot of the literature building on the work of Luis Garicano and Stefan Rossi Hansberg with these hierarchical models of firms based on knowledge hierarchies and, and so on. But so far we have little of that work linking it to cities. There are some exceptions. So there's you no know, Greg Spanos has a nice paper looking at this. Pilar Santa Maria, her market paper was also doing some work on that. But this is a couple of exceptions. We have very little work on this so far. So this is a nice papers trying to push some facts, you know, on top of which you could build some new models and, and get some more work on that. I want to let us move on to the next paper. But first, you answered a question I was going to ask, which is, what story might we tell about why this functional and spatial sorting occurred? And it sounds like communications and transportation, rather than management learning on its own, played a major role. In other words, technology, as opposed to just knowledge. Is that a fair characterization? It's partly communication technologies, but also I think partly management practices, right? And there's something to be said also about replicability of knowledge, right? And in how many places you can use the same kind of knowledge simultaneously, right? So how portable are business practices, right? So I think it's really a mixture of, of all of those things, yeah. I think another thing that's interesting here is this paper uses Danish data and Danish spatial and functional fragmentation trends, which is something we've seen in the US, but it's just interesting to see it occurring over the same timeline in a very different country with different political structures. Let's move on to the second paper, which is Location as an Asset by Adrian Bilal and Esteban Rossi Hansberg in Econometrica. And this is about location choices and how expensive locations inspire more investments of a certain kind whereas cheaper locations prompt more consumption in the present. Maybe an alternative title would be why there used to be great music and artists in the Lower East Side of New York City and Soho and East Village, et cetera, back when the real estate was cheap. And now that it's expensive, they've all been driven out. Tell us about this paper. Yeah, so this paper really encourages to think about location as an asset. So some listeners hearing this may be tend to think, well, of course, one's home is usually an important asset. But that's not what the paper says. It's not really telling us that houses are an asset, 
but that the location choice of people in itself is an asset, right? So this is important because it applies not just to homeowners, but also to renters. It's about your choice of location at any point in time being like the choice to buy or sell some asset. And the reason why a person's location choice is an asset is because like any asset, it allows you to shift consumption over time from the present to the future and from the future to the present. So this may seem a bit abstract, so let's try and make it a bit more concrete with an example, right? So think of someone working in the car industry in Detroit who gets laid off. Then faced with that negative income shock, they may want to smooth consumption by borrowing. But perhaps they're credit constraint and the bank will not lend them money. So another way in which they can transfer resources from the future into the present is by moving to a city that's even cheaper to live in than Detroit, but has even worse prospects for the future. Conversely, someone who gets a positive income shock may react to that by wanting to transfer resources from the present into the future. And they can do that by moving to a more expensive city with better future prospects. Right? So what Adrian and Stefan do is they write on a model with these features. And then they use microdata from France to show that location choices react to shocks in the way that the model predicts. Right? So there's another example of US authors getting data from outside. And this is the case here because actually the French data is very good for tracking this sort of thing. For me, this is also a really interesting paper in that it illustrates something that I've seen in many of other Esteban's papers in particular, which is to take economic theory and give us a new perspective on something that's happening in the world. And so some people might probably come in with the view that a neighborhood with very poor prospects is kind of an unmitigated bad, right? That this is just a bad thing. But in this paper, Adrian and Esteban are trying to convince us that there is this silver lining, right? That it is enabling this mechanism of essentially borrowing from the future to help with consumption. I feel like that's kind of something that I've seen before from at least one of these authors. Yeah, certainly. And another thing that comes in their work as well is this focus on dynamic issues, right? So I think our conventional way of thinking about location choices tends to be very static, right? We think about individuals checking, you know, the combination of housing costs, job opportunities, communities of different locations, and then choosing to go wherever that combination is best for them, right? Or at most, if we take into account moving costs, we say, well, because we want to recover the moving costs, you're going to need to add up these differences across cities over some period of time, right? right? But in reality, dynamics are much richer than that. And this paper is actually emphasizing that aspect, right? Another thing that comes out of this paper that I think is interesting is that it highlights that agglomeration economies and other benefits from being in dense and expensive locations are not something that you necessarily get immediately, but something that you get over time, right? right. And, you know, again, you know, this is something that we've seen in other contexts. So, you know, for instance, Jorge de la Roca and I had this paper in, in Aristat looking at worker earnings in different cities and showing that the earnings premium that you get from being in a bigger city is not something that you get immediately, but something that comes in the form of more valuable experience that you accumulate over time. So you get a jump when you move to a bigger city, but then that jump starts building up, actually accumulates more valuable uh, experience over time, right? So this is an example that they actually provide in the paper themselves, but there are many others, right? There are many yeah. ways in which the costs and benefits of cities are not something immediate, but something that takes time to accumulate. And that makes these dynamic considerations very important. Yeah, this is certainly like one of the most exciting and important frontiers in the field is thinking about how places change over time and how people 
in those places change over time. Let's move on to paper number three, which is the production function for housing evidence from France by Pierre-Philippe Combe, Gilles Joranton, and Laurent Gobion. That appeared in the Journal of Political Economy this year. The title is pretty informative. They're trying to estimate the production function for housing using data from France. What do they find? Well, here it's more about the method, right? So I'll tell you what they find in a moment. But in terms of method, this is what the real contribution is. Estimating the production function for housing is something that's important because obviously we want to understand housing supply. But it's something that is intrinsically difficult, right? And here the fundamental problem is that housing is very heterogeneous. Houses are very different from each other. And we cannot really observe what is the quality adjusted amount of housing that a dwelling offers, not the unit price, right? What we see is the value of a house, but the value of a house is price times quantity. And we cannot separate the price from the quantity. That's where the problem is really coming from. So how would we normally estimate housing production functions? Well, the first ways would be sort of the obvious traditional way to do it, right? So you get some measure of housing output and you regress it on land and other inputs that you can think of as, as capital. But because it's hard to separate the price of a house from the quality adjusted amount of housing that it offers, then when you do that regression, regressing the value of the house on land and capital, you're likely to have an error term that is correlated with the unit price of housing. And because that unit price will determine how much capital you're going to invest, you have a clear problem in running that regression, right? So a second strategy that people have followed is to instead regress the ratio of capital to land inputs on the unit price of land so that you directly estimate the elasticity of substitution between land and capital. But it's also problematic because, again, the same issue in this case is creating concerns about reverse causality. So that takes us to the third approach, which is something that was pioneered by Dennis Apple, Brett Gordon, and Holger Sieg in a paper published in 2010 in the AER, which was treating housing quantities and prices as latent variables, even though you cannot really see them. And then it used the assumption of constructions to scale and duality theory to characterize housing supply as an, implicitly as a function of the space and data that you can actually observe. So the paper that Pierre-Philippe, Gilles, and Laurent have published this year is related to that. It also treats housing quantities and prices as latent variables, since we cannot really measure them directly. Unlike the other paper, it does not assume constructions to scale, only free entry, which is going to be driving profit to zero. And instead of using duality, it takes a primal approach to profit maximization. Okay, so let me try to summarize what they do. Parcels are going to differ in desirability and therefore in the unit price for housing. But we don't see that unit price for housing. However, that unit price for housing, when we think about the problem for builders, is going to appear in two places. It's going to appear in the optimal capital investment rule from the first of the condition for profit maximization. It also appears in the super-profit condition. So we can combine the two to get rid of it, since we cannot see it, right? So first problem solved. Then we can also combine information from several parcels of land that are of the same size. So integrating that condition over all of those parcels is going to give us an equation that allows us to estimate the housing production function based only on things that we can actually observe, right? So what you need is data on the prices of parcels of the same size and the amounts of capital that are invested to build on them, right? They get this data for France, and that allows them to characterize the housing production function much better than has been done before. They find you know, in terms of what you were asking before, what do they find, right? What they yeah. find is that, strictly speaking, the housing production function is not constructed to scale and it's not Cobb-Douglas. But actually assuming that it's Cobb-Douglas is not a bad approximation, 
right? So if you assume that it's capitalist and that you have a capital that's about 0.65, you're doing pretty well. The other so we don't, we don't need to revise all of the other papers that have already assumed, <laughs> assumed that. No, I think, you know, something interesting coming out of this, actually, when you compare it with the results from other papers, is that part of what they do, this is something that may not be obvious when you just skim through the paper at first, right? Something that's part of their approach is that because they're integrating over all these parcels of the same size, mm-hmm. they need to be to smooth the data before, mm-hmm. right? Right. Now... When you see parcels of the same size that get different prices in actual transactions, this may be just because some are better located than others or has some features that really make them objectively more attractive. But it could just be idiosyncratic things. It could be a couple of buyers who had become fixated on the same plot of land and they right. start up bidding each other. Or it could be someone that has initially high expectations about appreciation for this plot of land or whatever, right? It could be just a lot of noise. And we've seen that the problem with all of these earlier approaches it's actually that that noise may be systematic in ways that concern us with econometric. So by smoothing the data, they get rid of much of this noise. And this means that simply by smoothing the data and using traditional approaches, they can get something similar to what they get with a new sophisticated approach, right? So smoothing actually goes a long way in terms of getting these estimates to be appropriate. So our next paper is by Jesse Hanbury in Econometrica. It's called are poor cities cheap for everyone, non-homotheticity, and the cost of living across U.S. cities? Before getting into the paper, I wonder if you could do us the favor of defining homotheticity and non-homotheticity. Sure. So when you have homothetic preferences, someone that has a higher income will buy the same combination of goods that someone that has lower income, but just larger amounts, right? So if someone with low income buys one loaf of bread and one steak, someone with high income will buy two loaves of bread and two steaks, right? So it's more quantity, but exactly the same combination of goods. Non-homothetic preferences arise when, as your income grows, the goods that you buy change. How you spread your consumption across different goods changes. So it's an aspect of the sort of the nature of demand and how the demand expresses itself. The composition changes as opposed to just buying more of the same widgets, they might buy different widgets, something like that. Exactly. It's really about rich people buying different things than poor people, not just buying more things than poor people. That's really what it amounts to, right? Thank you. Okay. So when we think about what drives location choices across cities, right? We were saying before, we think about things like job opportunities, differences in earnings, housing prices, set amenities like weather or being by the ocean, things like that, right? But we think much less about the opportunities to consume other goods that arise in different cities, right? So I guess a characteristic of Jessie's research over the years is that she's done a lot to make us think about how consumption possibilities vary from one city to another. You know, she's done lots of work on this, but a paper that's particularly related to this one that we're looking at today is an early paper she had with David Weinstein, published much longer ago, in 2014, if I recall correctly, in the Rifikang studies, where they used barcode data to show that bigger cities tend to have much more variety of goods, right? So now in the current paper, they're showing not just that bigger cities have more varieties, but that the specific varieties that get offered really depend on where they're being sold, right? So retailers are targeting varieties to the local population, and they try to sell different kinds of goods in rich neighborhoods compared to poor neighborhoods, right? So 
This matters for a number of reasons. One reason that why it matters is that it tells us that if we want to compare goods prices and standards of living across different places, we need to go to the very fine detail. Say you want to figure out whether a half gallon of milk is more expensive in uh, downtown Manhattan than in some small town in the Midwest, right? Well, you might look at what is the average price that people pay for a half gallon of milk in the two places. You might find that people pay a higher price in downtown Manhattan. But then you look at the detail and you realize that typically this is not the same half gallon of milk, but it's more likely to be, you know, some high quality organic milk from pasture raised cows or whatever, right? So it's really different varieties. When you stick to the same variety and you can do it with barcode data, where it's, you know, exactly the same product that's being sold in different places, you find that the prices are not all that different, right? So that's one reason why this matters. We need to really look at the fine detail of products and compare really like with like if we want to make comparisons of prices and, and standards of living. But the second reason is this non-homotheticity that we were discussing before, right? Which matters for inequalities. So the typical way in which we compute price indices, so the consumer price index that gets reported in the media all the time, this really amounts to pricing the same basket of good at different points in time or in different places. But in reality, because in different places, people are buying different things, it's not enough to compare the same basket. You actually take into account that different people are buying different baskets. So Jesse does precisely that in this paper. And what he shows is that the same high income market can be at the same time expensive for the poor and cheap for the wealthy. Okay, so this is not because the prices for some goods are any different in the high income market. It's because in a high income market, the poor cannot find the goods that they would like to buy. And instead, the rich can find goods that suit them, but that they would be very hard to find in some other place. Which is a good neighborhood for you, and what is a cheap and expensive neighborhood really depends a lot on your income. And that's a, a key finding from this paper. I'm sure I'm glossing over some of the important details, but both this paper and the location as an asset paper by Bilal and Rossi Hansberg made me think of the paper from David Auchur a couple of years ago, which talked about how the city that is where you can earn the most money in real terms is highly contingent on your education and earning potential. In other words, less educated people are not intrinsically better off in big agglomeration. I saw this anyway as a sort of interested outsider to the field as kind of pushing back against some of the earlier work from the 2000s on agglomeration being a kind of unalloyed good. Of course, I'm oversimplifying here. I take these papers as kind of of the same species or fleshing out our understanding of the nuances of location. It's so a wealthy person can get fantastic milk at a relatively low price in a place like Manhattan, but a poor person may not be able to get milk that they deem to be good at a reasonable price within a reasonable distance, which is a little bit more nuanced than saying that bigger places have better options. Exactly. There are two aspects to that, right? One is that we are increasingly realizing that the cost and benefits of cities are very heterogeneous, right? And exploring that heterogeneity, how they vary across people with different characteristics, different education, different income, is important. And the second thing is that we are realizing that differences across cities are not just about job opportunities. Consumption opportunities also matter a lot, right? And those two aspects are very clearly in this paper, right? And they're important if we really want to think about inequalities uh, more carefully. This is actually a pretty good segue into our next paper, which is also about sorting across locations. But one thing I appreciate about Jesse's 
research agenda is that it's very impressive niche that Chief's carved out, which is understanding how consumption opportunities shape cities, and in particular, the structure of consumer prices and consumer markets, and how important they are for the shape of our cities and places. It's an important agenda. It's an original agenda. It's something that she's been working on for a long time, right? So now we're seeing it becoming very vibrant, right? But she's been there from the beginnings. All right. The next paper, number five here, is East Side Story, uh, Historical Pollution and Persistent Neighborhood Sorting by Stefan Heblik, Alex True, and Janos Zilberberg. That appeared in the Journal of Political Economy this year. This is a really interesting paper for me as well. This is a paper where these guys took a bunch of data on smokestacks during the Industrial Revolution and combined it with wind patterns to show that these low-income neighborhoods back in the Industrial Revolution were places that were subject to a lot of these industrial pollutants. So maybe that's not too surprising, but it does involve an impressive amount of data work. But it turns out that those same neighborhoods today are still low-income neighborhoods today, even though the smokestacks are long gone. That's a somewhat surprising result. What did you make of this paper, Diego? It really ties a lot to your own widget agenda and all the work you've done on persistence, right? And how patterns of location that emerge at some point are very hard to break. It's neat because, of course, there are some broad patterns that we know. And anyone who's been to London or even just has a broad sense of the geography of London knows that the East End is much further than the West End, right? And, and there's something more general across cities in England, right? But this could be because of a number of things, right? It could just be whatever tradition or some kind of anything, right? So the careful data work that they do actually shows that it's really coming from these chimneys, right? So they look at like these 5,000 industrial chimneys. They get this abstract model that tells you where the wind is blowing. And then it's not just east versus west. It's really just whether you are located to close to a chimney and you can be upwind and downwind, right? So it's really about comparing the location downwind and showing that it's much poorer than the location upwind. And then showing that, because this is really from the Industrial Revolution, because before those chimneys didn't exist, they show these patterns were not there before. And then also, given that you had the clear and cleaner act passed and the chimneys stopped burning coal sometime in the late 60s, the reason for this neighborhood to be poor, which was the pollution, is no longer there. But the patterns persist, right? And this is something that we see in a number of contexts, something that you've shown in your own, your own research, right? So. Uh, neighborhoods are very difficult to change, right? And then, you know, I guess part of the open issue, although we have some papers really looking into that and trying to build models of that, is, is why that is the case, right? And it's still, I guess, an open question. I don't know what your take on that is. I mean, you know more about this topic than I do. But I guess part of what happens is that the fact that neighborhoods not change suddenly, but you just have a like a slow rotation of people in and out, that makes it very difficult to, to change, right? That creates a lot of inertia, yeah. right? The important debate here that's at the frontier of the literature, is kind of well-described, actually, in the recent working paper by Ellen and Donaldson, Treb Ellen and Dave Donaldson. And if you look in their model, there's two mechanisms that drive persistence. For example, like, why is a neighborhood persistent? One is sort of the legacy of the past kind of story. In the past, you made some kind of decisions, and those decisions have long lived consequences. So you decided to build a house or you built a road or you formed attachments to your neighbors, right? And so those are what they call historical spillovers. I might borrow from William Cronin and call them second nature because they're like nature, right? And then the other mechanism is that you can have these strong contemporaneous spillovers. And so the reason that a place is attractive 
is because of the other people or the other businesses that are located there today. And if the latter mechanism is important, then you sort of start thinking about, okay, well, there may be multiple equilibria, coordination is really important. And so those are kind of two takes on why persistence matters. Alan and Donaldson say this in their paper. I think it's true too, that this is an important frontier for researchers to, to be thinking about. Yeah, that's a very nice way to frame it. Okay. All right. The next couple of papers, we have a pair of papers on African cities. So the next paper is Building the City from Slums to a Modern Metropolis by Vernon Henderson, Tanner Regan, and Tony Venables. That was in the Review of Economic Studies. And then the paper after that is from Tanzania, Planning Ahead for Better Neighborhoods, Long Word Evidence from Tanzania, by a long list of co-authors, led by Guy Michaels. And Jamila Nikmatulina, who's a PhD at LSE and on the market. Ferdinand Rauch is faculty at Oxford. Tana Regan is not a PhD from LSE, and he has actually a co-author of both papers, Mirak Parua, and then Amanda Dalsfran, who's a PhD student at LSE as well. Do you want to talk about first the Nairobi paper? Yeah, so do that. For a long time, we've had very little high-quality research on urbanization in developing countries, and in sub-Saharan Africa in particular. And this is a pity, because we know that urbanization there is happening very rapidly. And the conclusions from research that we have done for the US and other developed countries does not really necessarily apply there, right? And there's some key differences. And one fundamental difference is that urbanization in Sub-Saharan Africa has both formal and informal buildings, right? That you can think of as you know, what we would normally call slums, right? So the paper by Vernon Penderan and Tony is one of the first papers trying to understand the process by which these formal and informal buildings arise and how you might convert one into the other. This paper starts from something that every urban economist knows, which is the monocentric city model. Now, we're more used to working with the static version of that model, right? And the static version of the model, when you explain it to students, it's a bit weird, right? Because you do comparative static in the monocentric model, and basically you change a parameter, and what you're doing, in essence, is tearing down the entire city and rebuilding it again for the new parameters. Right? So it's treating the capital in the city as being completely malleable. But of course, you know, as you were saying just a moment ago, talking about persistence, one important aspect of persistence over time is the infrastructure that we built and the capital that we put already in buildings. Right, So that matters a lot. And for this, we need a dynamic version of the monocentric model. Now, there was such a version developed already I think in 2001 by Ralph Braid. And there's a bunch of extensions to that. Someone interested in that could look at the book chapter by Jan Bruckner. He has a very nice book chapter on these dynamic models. So this paper is taking one of those models and extending it to really be able to think about urbanization in Saharan Africa. So a key change that it's making, it's allowing for both formal and informal buildings, where essentially the informal buildings are short and malleable, so you can actually change them very quickly. The formal buildings are tall, but they are very hard to change. That's a key difference. They add a couple of other things, right? So one is some geographic heterogeneity. That's going to be important in terms of matching the data, because then you can have places that are the same distance from the city center that look different in reality. And the second component is some institutional frictions. And those are going to be important just to think about what prevents more rapid formal development in these countries. Because in many of these countries, there are slums that are controlled by slum lords who manage lots of housing at the same time. And of course, they may have an incentive to slow down formalization because otherwise they would lose control of this large plot of land. So that's another element that they bring in. 
So they developed this model, and it's a neat model where it has some nice features. You have formal and informal buildings. As the city grows, it expands physically, but you also get some densification. In places that have formal buildings, that densification means building taller. In slums, you don't build taller. You instead fill gaps and make them denser just by having fewer and fewer gaps between dwellings. And then you also have some conversion of informal into formal dwellings. So they use the data to show that it can actually replicate what happens in reality quite carefully. They estimate the models. And then what they do at the end is an exercise where they say, what is the cost of these frictions? Let's say, what is the cost of having these slam boards who might retard construction? Well, when you evaluate the cost of those frictions that retard formalization, the value of that is large enough that you could compensate the slam boards and still have, have some change left, right? So this institutional aspect is important and that those barriers to formalization might be quite, quite big. Yeah, this is a nice illustration of two trends in the field, right? One is incorporating more dynamic factors into thinking about cities, but also increased attention to developing country cities, in this case, Nairobi. Let's talk about the next paper, the one in Tanzania. So this other paper is also looking at urbanization in sub-Saharan Africa. I'm thinking about a slightly different question, which is whether you should plan ahead for new neighborhoods or whether you should just let them grow organically without any advanced planning, right? And they do this with data from Tanzania. So in fact, seven different cities in Tanzania, including the biggest, which is Dar es Salaam. So this really ties into some views that people have expressed, in particular, Paul Romer and Slomo Angel have been very vocal in this, saying that it's very important to plan ahead and just laying out the basic infrastructure, the street grid, some water sewage systems is actually very important and can do a lot, right? So this makes sense, but is it true? Does it really matter as much, right? So that's what they look at in this paper. And they do that with a special regression discontinuity design, but essentially what it does is it looks at a bunch of places in Tanzania that got some advanced planning in terms of laying out basic infrastructure. And they compare them with other places that were very close by, but didn't get that advanced planning. And then they check the difference. And what they find is that areas that got that basic infrastructure plan ahead, today they have houses that are larger. They are laid out more regularly. They are better connected to electricity. And they also have higher quality homes. The other thing they find is that it really makes a difference whether you plan ahead fully or whether you react over time. And then when you see an area development, you say, okay, it's not doing so well. Let's go and try to upgrade the existing infrastructure, right? And this again ties into what we were discussing before in terms of persistence. So what they have is a model that gives some insight into this, suggesting that what happens is that in a place that gets fully planned ahead, you get enough people with nice housing that want to invest, that they really come in, invest themselves, and they really maintain this initial public infrastructure. Whereas in a place where the planning ahead didn't happen, and just trying to upgrade, there's enough low-quality housing that you don't get this private investment. The infrastructure that you put in deteriorates. It really never takes off in the same way. This paper reminds me of some other recent work by, say, like Nina Harari or stuff on transportation or transit systems, like the Nick Sivanidis paper. Alan Bertode said that economists should engage more with urban planners because that's where policy decisions affecting the shape of cities are being made. 
Do you think this is a sign that economists are taking that advice seriously? It's a start, but we should have more, right? I mean, we have, planners have been thinking about this for a long time. Mm -hmm. There are now people within special literature getting very nice data and measures of this so that you can actually not just describe things in some specific place, but actually characterize a whole country, right? So people like Geoff Boeing at USC or Daniel Rivas-Bell in Liverpool are getting all of these measures about the neighborhoods in a very systematic way, right? So I think talking with them and trying to figure out ways to analyze this data and bring it into economists' agenda would be very, very useful. Our next paper is by Enrico Moretti, The Effect of High-Tech Clusters on the Productivity of Top Inventors in the American Economic Review. Yeah, so this paper uses panel data on inventors in the U.S. to try to properly estimate agglomeration gains in innovation. So how much more productive are inventors if they are located in a high-tech cluster? So, of course, this sort of agglomeration economies is something that urban economists care a lot about. But these agglomeration economies imply that dense urban environments where many thousands of workers with high income capital get together and interact with each other, maybe have a causal impact on those establishments and workers becoming more productive. So this is something we typically strongly believe in, but something that it's very difficult to establish and quantify empirically, right? And maybe I think it's worth thinking about what are the basic problems that we face when we do this sort of thing. I would classify these problems into sort of three broad types of problems. The first problem is what we could call the endogenous urban environment problem. So we're trying to show that maybe greater density leads to higher productivity. But it could also be that there's something else that makes productivity higher in some place because the place is more productive, that attracts more firms and workers. And because you get more firms and workers moving in, then you get high density. So you get some reverse causality. It's not density that's causing productivity, but productivity that's causing density. Or it could even be some other thing that's driving both of them at the same time. So this is something that we've worried about for a long time. And we have a whole range of strategies to deal with it, from using instrumental variables to using panel data with a location fixed effects to quasi-experimental evidence to structural approaches. And none of those strategies is perfect. They all have pros and cons. But the nice thing is that they all more or less tell us the same thing, which is that in practice, this is not an important issue. So in practice, there doesn't seem to be all of that reverse causality. The set of estimates that we get when we use these strategies are similar to the ones we get when we do some more basic estimations. A second problem is what we could call the no paper trail problem. I guess this comes from some sentence in the book that Krupman had back in 91, talking about how knowledge spillovers leave no paper trail. And then we have the paper on patent citation say, well, we found a paper trail. Here's it in patent citation and so on, right? But in general, those sort of examples where you can actually find a trail of spillovers or Agglomeration economies are difficult because most of these agglomeration economies are actually externalities that are very hard to track and measure, right? So in fact, this is one of the big pending issues in the study of agglomeration economies, really being able to disentangle different sources, which are very hard to see and have very similar aggregate implications. The third problem, and this is the one that this paper that we're now talking about really deals with, is what we could call the people versus place problem. Right? So we see more productive workers in denser areas or more productive inventors in high-tech clusters. But is it the place that's making them more productive 
Or is it that people who are more productive like to be in those places? Well, it's hard to tell, right? So the usual strategy is to use panel data and then include individual fixed effects. What this means is that you then identify these agglomeration economies, not by comparing Susan, who is in Palo Alto, with Mary, who's in, in Dallas, but actually Susan when she was in Palo Alto, and Susan herself, now that she has moved to Dallas, right? So you're using variation for the same person across two different places, and you see whether that makes a difference. So this sort of thing is relatively easy to do when you think about, say, earnings and workers, because in many countries now you have this match employer employee data where you can do that, but it's much more difficult to do for innovation. So what Enrico does in this paper is to construct a panel that tracks inventors over time. So we can see the same inventor living in different places. And the nice thing about inventors is that although they're very special, they also have a productivity that it's much easier to measure accurately, right? Because when we think about earnings regressions, well, earnings may not be such a good measure of productivity for workers. But looking at the number and quality of patterns of inventors may be a better way to measure actual productivity. Then he looks at whether the same inventor moving across places becomes more productive when they relocate to a high-tech cluster. So, for instance, he finds that someone in computer science moving from the medium-sized cluster in computer science, which is Gainesville in Florida, to a cluster at the 75 percentile of size, which would be Richmond, Virginia, they would get like a 12% rise in productivity for the same inventor working in the same firm. The patterns that they do after moving to a larger higher tech cluster also tend to be higher quality. And then there's some actually nice aspects that he gets in addition. So for instance, he shows that inventors tend to cite more patents for every patent that they create after they move to a high tech cluster, which suggests that they're getting more information about what other people are doing. Now, this also has implications to think about the aggregate implications of agglomeration economies, right? Because think of a situation where you would artificially take some inventors from high-tech clusters that are big and relocate them to a smaller cluster. Well, that's going to be bad for the inventors who are left in the high-tech cluster that's big because there are a few of them now. It's going to be good for the inventors that were already in the smaller high-tech cluster. So some gain some lose. What he shows that overall, however, there's some aggregate losses, right? So while this clustering of activity may be something that exacerbates inequalities, it's also that brings some aggregate gains, right? So when we try to play with these things, all of these policies try to change activity or promote tech clusters in other places and so on, they have implications for the place, but they also have aggregate implications, and it's important to take those into account. One piece that I thought was interesting, because I started reading this and I immediately got nervous about using patents as a measure of productivity. But then in the section on data limitations, he acknowledges this and says um, he also looks at subsequent citations to measure patent quality. I'm not an IP lawyer, but somebody who knows a lot about IP would be able to speak intelligently about the sort of value of a typical patent. Often it's very trivial in innovation terms. So I wanted to mention that for our listeners whose ears might have perked up at the equation of patents with productivity. It's not just a limitation to focus on patents or even citations. There's a little bit of a distortion there because 
We're just measuring kind of activity as opposed to outputs, it seems to me. That's not really a criticism. I think actually he's pretty forthright about acknowledging that. It's kind of like buzz and vibe as opposed to local GDP or something like that. Yes, patents give us a very partial view of innovation, but at the same time, there's something where we actually can tie the output, in this case, a patent, which is an idea that's officially recognized as new with some particular person, right? So normally when we get data, we can get productivity at the firm level, but it's very hard to get measures of actual individual productivity for people who work inside the firm, right? And of course, patents are very partial aspect of productivity, but at least there's one instance where you can actually tie the productivity to a particular individual in the company. And then in that sense, they're special, yes, but useful as well. How do we tease apart the location question from the move question? It might be that Dallas is more or less productive than Palo Alto, and that's what explains Susan's change in productivity. Or it might be that people who move from one to the other become more or less productive. That's actually a perfect segue into the next paper that we have. <laughs> so that's the one on commuting and innovation, are closer inventors more productive? By Hongyu Xiao, Andy Wu, and Yaho Kim in the Journal for Brain Economics. And this is precisely getting at your excellent question, Greg. So I worry when you do this kind of exercise where you have panel data, meaning that you follow people over time, and then you identify from variation for one person when they move from one place to another, the worry is that people are not moving randomly. And in particular, it's not just about who moves, but when do they move, right? So for instance, it could be that an inventor moves because they're going through some phase in their life where you know there are lots of things happening outside work. Maybe this person is busy with small children, or maybe there's some illness in the family to take care of, or whatever, right? And they think, well, I'm going to go to a place that's less work-oriented and something that's more family-friendly and whatever. And then they move to some less productive place because they know they don't want to be that focused on research right now. Or the opposite. There might be someone who thinks, well, I'm in a really productive phase of my career right now, so I'm going to go to a big high-tech cluster where I can really take advantage of this, right? And that's a worry, the fact that these locations are not exogenous. So this is precisely what this paper gets at, and it's very neat, right? Because what they're doing is they're also tracking the location of inventors over time, but now not just across cities, but within cities. It's a slightly different question from the one that Enrico was asking, which was more about people moving within cities, but it's still about where you are located, right? So specifically, what they're focusing on is inventors working for firms that change their office location in the city. So when a firm that has inventors changes the office location, then you might still be living in the same house where you were living before, but now the firms move closer to your neighborhood. That's great. Shorter commute now. But some of your mates at work instead will have a longer commute. So now what they're going to do is for the same firm, they're going to be comparing what happens before and after the relocation to workers who by chance got their commute shortened with other inventors who by chance got their commute extended. Right? So this is a beautiful source of identification. And the nice thing that they find is that, indeed, this matters a lot. They show that when this workplace relocates, inventors who must now commute longer see their patent productivity fall relative to inventors with shortened commutes. And the effect is very large, right? So like every 10 kilometers increase in distance is associated with a 5% decrease in patents per inventor and a 7% decrease in quality. 
And the most productive inventors are actually the ones who suffer the most. I think this is also important because in this COVID times, where we're thinking a lot about working from home and what the long-term implications might be, you see lots of people saying, well, it really doesn't matter. We have seen firms being forced to adopt all of these work-from-home practices, and we're not seeing that huge effects, right? But one thing is the short-term effect, another thing is the long-term effect, and especially the long-term effect in activities that involve lots of face-to-face exchanges, lots of flows of information. Presumably, what's happening here in this context is that workers whose firm moves further away from their home are now going to be working from home more often. They don't go to the office as often. They don't interact with their colleagues as much and they become less productive. The ones who saw their office come closer to their home now go into the office more often, they interact more, and they become more productive, right? So this suggests that maybe working from home, or at least working from home very often, is not going to work all that well for innovation. I mean, this is a huge open question, and we're going to be witness to the consequences of it in the coming years. It's also related to the first paper that we talked about, right? You know, is this sort of fragmentation of firm functions? Is that going to have, to the extent that maybe innovation is driven by different kinds of activities interacting with each other, managers and production workers observing each other and having that communication back and forth, it's possible that that could have some dynamic effects on invention. The last paper that we're going to talk about today is also a little bit about transportation and industrial organization. This is the economics of speed, the electrification of the streetcar system, and the decline of mom-and-pop stores in Boston, 1885 to 1905 by Wei Yu. And this was a paper that was in AEJ Applied Economics. Yeah, so this paper is also looking at the effects of changes in in commuting costs in a different context, right? So this is uh, way back when U.S. cities electrified their streetcar systems, and this happened over the U.S., But this paper is looking at Boston in particular, because Boston has two features that make it a nice place to look at this process. The first feature is that the process was particularly fast in Boston. So over the space of, I think, just seven years, the streetcar system went completely from being horse-run to being electrified. So you get this very sudden change. And then the other nice feature is that Boston has two peninsulas, Charleston and East Boston. They are similar in size and in distance to City Hall but that varied a lot in their connectivity in this period because Charleston got connected uh, straight away, whereas East Boston only got connected after the building of, of a town, right? So this also gives you some sort of variation within the city. And what they do in the paper is they compare areas at different distances from the uh, streetcar track. So they look at areas 25 meters away from or less from the track, places that are between 25 and 75 meters from the track, and places that are more than 75 meters from the track. Now, let's think back at this period, right? In this period, people didn't have refrigerators in their home. So they needed basically to go and buy groceries every day. And then groceries are bulky and heavy. So you don't want to be carrying lots of bags walking over a long distance. So the electrification of the streetcar allowed you to go shopping much further. And it allowed people to, instead of going to lots of small specialized shops that had to be really in the neighborhood to be able to say, maybe go to Central City and buy there and then take this streetcar back, right? So what they show is that, in fact, when you compare these areas at different distance from the track, you see, yes, overall, a decline in mom and pop stores in Boston, but the decline was much sharper 
in areas that are very close to the track, right? So places that were very connected with the streetcar, the little shops closed down, and you see it instead had big retailers coming up and serving large areas now thanks to this electric streetcar system. It's a really impressive paper, like amazing uh, historical data work here. And it ties into so many of the themes that we've already talked about in the last hour, right? It's thinking about how firms are evolving, how transportation technology is getting into that, and how consumption opportunities shape cities. It ties to changes more recently, right? I mean, there was a big change in the late 19th, early 20th century. But you can think of, you know, similar changes happening today, you know, with the big online retailers expanding and taking over from brick and mortar stores and big chains from smaller firms and, and so on, right? So there's a parallel with trends that we're seeing today that may also be driven by changes in transportation systems and market access, right? Now's the time of the show where we do the appendices. Diego, what's your appendix? Yeah, so I was going to mention something related to your comment before about trying to get more interactions between urban planners and urban economists. Thinking in a more local context here in Europe, you have lots of initiatives now trying to very significantly change the way cities are organized, right? So you have these super blocks in Barcelona that are trying to cut traffic from going in between city blocks and getting larger blocks. You have this idea of the 15-minute city in Paris. You have many areas in Europe that are getting these areas that are cordoned off for non, non-local residents, right? And, and these initiatives, they seem sensible. They have a good, a good motivation behind them in terms of trying to get more livable and more environmentally friendly cities. But we don't know how much they work or whether they work at all. What are the consequences, right? So I think this is a nice context for urban economists to be thinking about these issues and trying to get some feedback into that coming from a research perspective and not simply from an uh, ideological perspective. That's great. Uh, Greg, do you have an appendix this week? Yeah. So our conversation about the Boston streetcar paper made me think a little bit about coffee, which is a, a personal obsession. And so I'm visiting at WashU in St. Louis this semester and there is a local coffee distributor. They have shops as well, but they also sell beans to a lot of local places called Caldi's. And to hear people locally tell it, this has raised the level of coffee in St. Louis. And so you can actually get really good coffee at a lot of places, partly because the floor is just higher because there's this local distributor that came in early and is really good. That made me think about the Boston Streetcar paper and how the introduction in that case of a technology, in this case of a firm, affects the market locally. It also made me think about location as an asset because it is thought anyway that one reason why a lot of roasters have been able to open up in St. Louis is because the real estate is pretty cheap. And so it's lowered the effective cost of experimenting with coffee and with food. I guess I'm now an uncompensated spokesman for St. Louis, but it's kind of a breeding ground for food and coffee and other things where you need room to fail in order to succeed. That's great, Greg. Thanks. My appendix this week is two short essays came across in the last week. One is called On Not Reading Papers by Jan Hendrik Kirchner on the Universal Prior Substack. And the other one is Reading Books Versus Engaging With Them by Holden Karnofsky on the Cold Take Substack. And both of these essays are dealing with this problem of how do you digest all of the stuff that there is to read out there? And what should you be optimizing for? What I took away from these essays was, I think the objective that we should be going for is retaining 
information, right? Remembering it a month, a year, three years later. And both of these are kind of making the argument that actually the most efficient way to do this is not just to read them from front to back. And in particular, Karnofsky's essays emphasizes that it's important to read the reviews and discussions of the work in question. That's the most efficient way to retain something. That to me actually kind of crystallized what is the value of having in-person conferences? What is the value to exercises like the one we're doing today where we're talking about other papers? I think this is like a very effective way to kind of cement knowledge into your brain, listening to a discussion, listening to a comment on a paper that somebody else is making. I feel like those are really useful things and things that I'm looking forward to coming back as we come out of COVID. Sure. And then, you know, there's always the thought that if you want to learn about research properly and many papers, then listen to the Nancy Speaking podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's the other strategy. That's perfect, Diego. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to today's show. For Diego Puga, Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn, our producer, Scholar Pals. Check the show notes for links to some of the articles that we discussed on the show and let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show's handle is Densely Speaking. Greg is at Greg underscore Schill. I'm at Jeff Arlen. Diego's at Prof Diego Puga. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a second to rate and review the show as well. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.